Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Uh, today we have on Melissa and Sylvia, who are the right and left hands of the Ayahuasca Retreat Center in uh, Peru called Soltara, which I'm actually going back to in a couple of weeks for, I think, my 12th, 13th, and 14th sit with Ayahuasca. And it's been interesting uh, this is the busiest season of my life, but for long-term listeners, they're like, he's saying that like every six months. And it's like, yeah. There was a quote I heard from Jordan Peterson, and he said, in your 20s, go as hard as you possibly can to find out where your edge is and then dial it back like 20% so you don't burn out. I'm in denial that I'm 31, and I'm still believing that I'm still trying to find that edge. But with all of that said, each time that I go or each time that I feel the call to go sit with ayahuasca and then I begin the on-ramp into getting into that space, there's always this like intuitive ping of what's the just right psychic dieta for me to complement the physical dieta. And uh, interestingly enough, yesterday my ping came and it's essentially to not digest any like scientific or academic or technical outside information, which is something that I tend to do if I make myself not do it and to relax into reading uh, a couple of fiction books that I've been really interested in. Um, the first one is American gods, which is a novel. And then the second one is, uh, the Sandman, collection or um i don't you know both are by neil gaiman and they're mythopoetically so in resonance with how i see the world when it comes to gods and dreams and the sandman is about morpheus the king of dreams and all the adventures that he goes through adventures feels like the wrong word to use because graphic novels are graphic and i really enjoy how mature the tone is and it's also like there's some really difficult stuff too, but it's incredible. And then American Gods is uh, maybe Neil Gaiman's most famous book. And it's incredible. If you vibe with the stuff that I talk about and how I see the world, you will love both of those books. And so in conjunction with those books, it's uh, writing my fiction, like retelling the story of my life that's brought me up to this point specifically my journey with um, not being connected to my heart until I was probably about like 26, like not even realizing that I wasn't connected to my heart until I was about 26. And then starting the process of trying to remove all the armor that I had learned to put around my heart from all the experiences that I had in my life. And then what my life is like now that I've learned how to notice when my heart is starting to close and how to do the things that allow me to open it so I can be in radical aliveness with life, you know, because uh, we're all going to die. And it's the game is on some level, how can you be radically alive while trying to become the most epic, beautiful version of what you could be? Because if you're alive, you're all in, you know, there's no, it's all the same at the end. And it's death unless you believe in the stories that blah 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 but i don't quite resonate with those yet so it feels good to be entering into that space 
And it's a nice little God wink that uh, this is the podcast that happens to be coming out today. And we get into, you know, the things that come up uh, when you go into this type of transformative space. And really what was cool is we were able to just riff on a lot of ideas and uh, bounce off of each other and there was some synergy. I haven't done a podcast with three people over Zoom and it ended up going really well. There's a, a poem that they share that is epic. And um, I think that you'll really enjoy hearing what it's like on the other side of these um, plant medicine retreat centers and what they see and what they're trying to do and how they're trying to help. I think it's really um, healing for us to connect to the actual humans behind you know, the symbols and the companies because it's humans all the way down. And I think that it's, 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 it's easy for us to judge things that we don't like if we just focus on the entity and don't connect to the fact that there's humans on the other side of it. If you want to support this podcast, the best way that you can do it is to sign up for my newsletter at ericgotzi.com. And if you resonated with them and you would like to support what they're doing, they've actually just launched a project called the Maloka, which is a online gathering space for people who want to be in digital community during their integration process after something like ayahuasca. There's a really interesting tension of stories happening in our culture right now where it's kind of a... Uh, spiritually in vogue to just completely write off social media. And I think that there is, the way that I see it is that social media is like the grandchild of fire. And fire as a metaphor is potent because if you don't learn how to use it, it can literally destroy everything and kill you. But if you learn how to use it, it radically transforms and enhances your life. And I think social media is like that. And we're in an age where we're trying to figure out what are the just right ingredients for a digital community that's regenerative to the people who are a part of it that also is not a replacement for actual physical connection, which social media will never be able to get to the essence that can only be got to when you're in presence with a bunch of people and you're vibing, it's just, it's, I just don't see a way how that's gonna be replicated. Good luck, Zuck. And for people who don't know, Mark Zuckerberg is the CEO of Meta, and he's basically trying to answer that problem because it'd be really good for business if they could. So we'll see how that goes. So again, if you resonate with them, check out their project, the Maloka. It's Dopa. Graham, keep that in. Graham, stop shaking your head. Um. Thank you guys for your time and your attention. And without further ado, Melissa and Sylvia's myths. Melissa and Sylvia, welcome to the podcast. Uh, both of you are integral parts at uh, Sultara Healing Center, which has been one of the most profound uh, locations that my meat suit has ever gone to. And I've gone now three times. And uh, I'm having the two of you on the podcast because you two have recently collaborated with, 
you know, the guide seen and unseen and each other to create this uh, digital community and also in-person community that you're calling the Maloka. And so thank you for the work that you do in the world. And I'm excited to hear what is going on when it comes to uh, a healing center trying to incorporate this really interesting uh, phenomena that we have, which is social media. And it's almost like to ignore it or to not integrate it is to be naive and to try to like stay in the past. Uh, but it comes with its own challenges. And the, the way that I like to think about it is um, the original alchemical technology that humans uh, found or discovered, depending on how you want to look at it, was fire. And fire is one of those things where uh, if used naively, can destroy you. And if used expertly, can transform your civilization unlike anything else. It can give you comfort at night. It can keep you warm when it's cold. It was probably the birthplace of people having interesting conversations, you know, around a fire. And it's also the thing that allows for alchemy, like actual, like chemistry, like transforming one thing into another. And when you look at technology, technology is condensed and controlled fire as electricity. Like it's all electronics are like the grandchild of fire. And I think social media is like the new, it's the new young fire on the block. And if you don't know how to use it, it'll fucking destroy you. And if you learn how to use it, it might be one of the most transformative things that you could possibly learn how to use. And uh, no pressure, no big deal, but it feels like you guys are trying to figure out how to do that. Thanks so much, Eric. Thank you for having us on. It's, it's really wonderful to be here. And uh, yeah, it's absolutely an exponential catalyst, isn't it? It's, it's one, of those this, one of those times in human history where we discover something that changes the face of how people live, work, interact, make meaning. And you're absolutely right. It can be used to build something and it can be used to destroy. And that's really, really up to us, isn't it? Yeah. And I think um, it's about like learning the edges of fire, right? It's like we're getting familiar with it. If we grow it too big, it could catch some trees on on fire and, and burn down a whole forest. And so I think it's it's something that we can explore and something that we can find curiosity around. Uh, rather than kind of stamping this label, oh, that's bad. We're spending too much time online. We need to turn it off and get back to nature. And it's like, yeah. And how can we balance that with what it is? Because it is a tool and it's it's really beautiful the way that, you know, I'm watching people and I'm using it myself the way that we're gathering more information, we're sharing things um, more fluidly with one another. And I find that to be, honestly really exciting i feel like there's this uh responsibility that as we're, we're pretty much all the same generation i think right like millennials 
And so coming of age at the turn of the century, right? And I believe that we are actually the last generation in human history that remembers clearly growing up without the internet and without the level of social connection and technology that we have at this point. And there's something really profound to me about that. And I've, I've thought about it all throughout, even just coming into this healing work and trying to build community in person, you know, and, and virtually. And, you know, Sylvia and I are, have had these discussions before where there is a bit of a, it feels as if there's a sacred responsibility here to sort of teach and model and be an example for how we can use this type of virtual connection as a force for good, because I remember what it was like without it. And that's the last time that anyone, that's the last generation that will ever say that at all, which is pretty insane. Think about it. Yeah, the thing that comes to mind is uh, hopefully it's the last generation because, you know, there's the quote, it might be a miss <laughs> unless there's uh, an apocalypse. <laughs> right. It might be a misattribution to Einstein, but it's that um uh I don't know with what weapons World War Three will be waged with, but I know that World War Four will be fought with sticks and stones. Oh God. <laughs> so but yeah. Um it kind of yeah, I really like that, Eric. There's this also this really amazing book. Um and it, I'm, I'm missing the title right at this moment, but it's like once we have found the the book was talking about a poem that was wrote, wrote written, <laughs> and um, essentially what they were saying is once we explore all the possibilities, then we will know fire again. Wow! We will kind of it's like once we explore all the possibilities, and it was attributing that to sort of. Um, the divine feminine, but I digress, but it kind of reminds me of that um, around kind of once we've explored all the possibilities, we'll then ex we'll kind of find fire again. Yeah. So let's step out of the philosophical and I was the one that brought us here and I want to uh, re-anchor into what is Sultara and what is the Maloka for the person who isn't smoking weed and just chilling and enjoying the fact that we're talking about technology being the grandchild of fire. <laughs> I'll, I'll take Soltara. You take the Maloka, Sylvia? Sounds good. <laughs> okay, great. Um, yeah, so Soltara is a, Soltara Healing Center is an ayahuasca plant medicine healing center. So um, if for those who, who may not know what ayahuasca is, it's a, um, a hallucinogenic sacred brew that has been used medicinally and for other purposes in ritual and ceremony for hundreds, if not thousands of years um, across many different indigenous peoples in the Amazon jungle mainly. Um, and so we have worked with a specific culture, um, the Shipibo communities from the Peruvian Amazon, and much of their use uh, in this day and age often revolves around healing. And so it's a, a tea that's taken in a healing context in a ceremony um, with healers who hold the space, who have many, many, many years of experience doing so. Um, we work with Western facilitators who act as a bridge between the healers and 
the participants and um, we're in Costa Rica. So we're actually also kind of a physical bridge as well between the, the global North and South. Um, and so myself, most of the team, Dan, my co-founder have spent many years um, in Peru working closely in the Amazon with the Shipibo communities. And we really connected with their way of working with the medicine. And we found that there were just such profound results. Um, and so when we decided to open Soltara in Costa Rica, uh, we kind of, we wanted to bring that same um, context for the ceremony itself uh, into the center that we have now. And then also have a focus on what's called now, it's kind of a buzzword now in the, in the field of psychedelic healing um, integration, which is essentially aftercare support. And how do you take the lessons and the insights from what you received in ceremonies um, and take that into your life and actually implement those lessons and hopefully transform for the better. Um, and so we collaborate with clinical psychologists who have lots of plant medicine experience and we have uh, an integration program, which the Maloka is a part of. And um, we are, yeah, really excited to just help to support bringing this medicine into the world in a way that is still following as much as possible. It's not like a complete authentic tradition because um, what even is authentic tradition? Um, but we do work under the guidance of our Shipibo healers, and they have autonomy over the ceremony. And then we offer supportive modalities, yoga, um, integration circles, workshops, and things like that throughout the retreat to just support the medicine work. You're really good at that. <laughs> she was, I was like, wow. <laughs> Great job, Mel. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> Had some practice. <laughs> yeah, and so the Maloka is sort of was born out of the need around integration. When we first were uh, drinking medicine um, back in Peru, many of the centers could, it really felt like you come, you drink and you leave. And it was this, this kind of repetitive thing. And so we recognized early on that that kind of model was not only kind of fracturing the force of uh, ayahuasca itself um, and um, what kind of lies there, but also in the, in the people and their nervous systems. It was just a, too much. You know, you have this experience where some people are traversing the depths of their being. Some people are experiencing um, touching a past relative and, and sometimes people kind of um, don't experience too much and that in and of itself is a lot for their nervous system. And so when Melissa and Dan decided to open up a center in Costa Rica, one of the things that we all discussed was like, okay, this is awesome. We're really excited and we need to like really amp up the integration side of things. How can we really bridge the gap between these ex great, profound experiences and also kind of come back to everyday life? You have this experience in the jungle. You're amongst people that you've, uh, you started as strangers and now your best friends, your family, and it's time to go home, have a few days off and get back into maybe your nine to five job. And that can feel extremely overwhelming to the nervous system. And so 
we created an integration program and we got to a place where like, okay, this integration program's awesome. Um, Kendra Birdsaw created this amazing workbook, The Hero's Journal. And so we were like, this is, this is beautiful. Let's do more. So Melissa and I and um, a couple of other members of, of the team, uh, we started to really brainstorm what, what this looks like. And I was like, what about an app? <laughs> and this was, she's like, wow, yes, like, let's do this app. And then I'm like, well, we were discussing together and like, well, why, why don't we just kind of expand the, the view of this and allow this to be a sort of an integration and introduction, not only to plant medicines and psychedelics, but other holistic medicines and biohacking and uh, spiritual work. And, and so the Maloka was kind of born out of this desire to meet people where they are. Not everyone has access to um, going, <laughs> taking a week retreat in Costa Rica or Peru or wherever they might go. But we wanted to be able to meet people uh, where they are. And so that might look like someone starting out with a somatic experiencing practitioner that might start up someone finding out more about Reiki or coming to one of the community events. So it kind of grew and grew and in this way. And the three pillars that we sort of um, built the Malokan was around community. Um, it's so important to both of us for people to be seen and heard. I remember what it was like for me to feel sort of this awakening experience. And it almost felt a little dirty, it felt like uncomfortable. It felt like a secret, like I couldn't tell anyone. And, and we really wanted people to feel like we could be there for them and, and um, build a community around that. And so how can we support that? And then we have these great resources and support, which is the second pillar of the Maloka. And we kind of connect with trusted practitioners and healers in our network. Um, to give access to our community, um, as well as reciprocity. That's kind of been a huge part of all of this with Sultara, of course, and all, as well as the Maloka, as we want to, we are stewards, you know, in some way, we are just visiting this, this medicine space. And so how can we give back to the people who are carrying this medicine and how can we give back in reciprocity to the to the collective healing and discovering organ, organizations that do amazing work um, that, yeah, so we just wanted to connect people with those. So I, so that's kind of like a bit of an overview about the Maloka. Yeah. I love it. And quite a few things are coming up. I'm going to see if I can collect all these threads. Uh, the first is, it's really interesting how, um, like when it comes to our modern myths around relationships, there's this motif that most people might not recognize, but it's that the myth or the fairy tale, the movie, the book, it ends right when the real work starts, which is mm -hmm. now you're in relationship. And the really interesting thing is when you look at the hero's journey, so uh, the hero's journey was first uh, kind of, quote unquote, realized by Jung um, about 120 years ago. And what he found was that when he looked at the mythology of every major culture that they had access to back then, they all had this core structure. 
And then Joseph Campbell was able to articulate it. Jung was not good at like teaching what he knew. He was just like scribbling down as quickly as he could as he was at the forefront. And so Joseph Campbell, as a student of Jung, comes along and systematizes it and gives us this hero's journey template. And the thing about the hero's journey is that it ends right when integration is starting. Like it ends in the same way that our relationship fairy tales end, right when the actual relationship work starts. The hero's journey, the fucking myth at the core of every major culture that we have historical documents of, the last stage is coming home and then sharing essentially what you learned. That's the beginning of integration. (laughs) And we don't have a modern story about what integration looks like. And what's really interesting is um, the most recent Matrix movie sucked for a lot of reasons. But if you could see beyond why it sucked and you really looked at the parts of it that were genius, the thing that's genius about it is that... uh, the main character, Neo, goes through his whole hero's journey. And then the last movie is him basically gaslighting himself daily <laughs> to forget everything that he learned, quote unquote, being the hero. And how he, had, he has to create this elaborate life around him. And The really interesting thing that that movie hints at that is a digression, but I just want to share it here, is that like, as you wake up, your inner critic gets more intelligent in trying to gaslight you away from doing the things that you know are the things to do to become who you're meant to be. And so I want to share that point that we don't have a good story for this thing that we're calling integration. And so this type of work is really important to figure out how to do. And the other thing to feel into is with these peak experiences and as a coach for Fit for Service, we're constantly trying to get better at how do we help people integrate after having these experiences. And so the peak experiences can be many different things, but ayahuasca is a surefire fucking way to get you there is it connects you to this non-linguistic somatic felt sense that there's a type of being that you are meant to make manifest in this life and it's something everyone has an intuitive feel for and whatever your specific inner call is it is going to be at odds with the quote-unquote ordinary world that you Mm -hmm. find yourself in on a day-to-day basis and that these peak moments they like they remind you you need to make a few changes and the metaphor that i think really anchors this home is on a technical scientific level that we just yet currently don't have the means to measure properly. Inside of every seed is, the, is some type of information that knows what it's meant to become. And it, Love that. 
and that it is in every moment, the intelligence inside of the seed is trying to absorb the nutrients from the environment with the sole goal of rupturing and destroying the seed <laughs> because it knows that what is inside of it is what it's meant to become. And humans are the only animal other than domesticated animals that are able to quote unquote become traumatized. Mm -hmm. And the core reason for that is that we have this really interesting self-reflective consciousness that seems to feel as if it gets to make choices and it can get in the way of evolutionary processes in the body. And for some examples, that's, re that's really good because most social animals have some type of programs for like raping and murder. So we obviously want the capability to step in the way of our evolutionary instincts. But when it comes to something like trauma, animals know how to move a traumatically charged experience from their nervous system and they, and they don't hold on to trauma. Humans can get in the way. In the same way that we can get in the way of our natural processing of traumatic experiences, it seems to be that we're able to get in our own ways in manifesting that inner image inside of us that's inside of every seed. And integration yeah. work feels like it's, I've reconnected to that inner image that is asking me to become the thing I'm not yet currently. I'm going back to the part of my life that helps keep my acorn shell together. And now I'm experiencing this really uncomfortable feeling of this shell is not right, but I don't know if it's safe to open. And that feels like that's what integration work is really trying to get to, is how to help people destroy their fucking lives in a way that's actually for the good. Wow, yes. <laughs> And I, I love what you said too. And it kind of um, brought up some things within me too. If we talk about the intelligence of that seed, right? It has everything it needs to thrive. It knows exactly what it is. I question if the opposing forces that we feel are hindering us from being, you know, that the person, what we're meant to be or kind of purpose, so to speak, is... Um, what hinders us is actually a catalyst for us. And of course, as you know, it's a different perspective. The perspective is around like these parts of us that feel uncomfortable, like leaning into them. Um, they're almost like the gatekeepers of the next level. I know a lot of my um, ceremonies can almost feel like a Nintendo game. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, like one point there's like Bowser there and I'm like, okay, what does he have to teach me? You know, I'm kind of leaning into this, this kind of villain and this villain kind of is an aspect of myself. And so I, it's really too, and part of circle back to integration, how integration almost feels like we've had this glimpse, like we've opened up the curtains, we've seen what we saw and we're like, oh shit, like I've got to close these up. Can't see anything, board it all up. I don't, I can't look. I have to get away from it. But if, you know, it's like leaning into that, what does that look like? How does that feel? What does that uncomfortable feeling feel like for you? And kind of bringing that back into this, um, because there's everything in, in us that wants to stay the same. Change is really threatening to us. Yeah. And so we have these like guardians of, 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 of 
these edges that we reach. 100%. So, yeah, almost, I love how you articulated that. It's almost a death, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. This, yeah. This surrendering to the death. And of course, that's, of course, that's scary, right? But if we can, if we can reach those depths within ourselves, where, like, what power that is what alchemy we can create understanding these parts of ourselves that can reach that deep, that can surrender, can face that darkness, can, you know, understand and be with that sadness, can learn the resilience through these challenges and trials and peak experiences and depths of hell that people can go to. You know, I think the, the full the full spectrum of emotion is what makes us who we are. And it's not just touching the divine, it's also touching that shadow. And I think that really understanding that um, fuels integration. And I think that maybe that's sometimes misunderstood. I think it's, you know, depending on who you talk to, but there's, there's this sort of trend that we address in the, the spiritual community of um, of spiritual bypassing and toxic positivity and, you know, people ha coming in with these expectations that they are going to experience God and have this peak experience. And maybe that's true. And some people do, and that's wonderful. But, um, you know, really understanding that this work is, is not just about the top of the mountain, like the power is also the, the, the depth of the valley and the fact that you can traverse both, like you're only getting half the equation, right? If you're not touching your shadow. And, you know, I, I want to share a story actually recently uh, from an integration call that we had um, through the Maloka last week. There was someone, and, and I, I share this because I really resonate with what he was feeling. And I loved the way that our, our therapist, um, helped him to integrate this. So he had a really amazing experience. He, you know, loved himself for the first time, got rid of a lot of shame, was in this, like got rid of his depression, really was on this, this in this elevated state going home. And he went back home to his partner who, you know, normally he was the one that struggles with depression. And in this case, it was his partner who was um, now struggling. And so on this call, um, the guest, the participant was, was really struggling. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't want, I don't want him to bring me down. Like, this is really hard. Like I'm trying to like stay in this state that I finally connected to after all this work. Right. And, uh, and so our therapist said, so how, how does, like, how does this feel for you? How does this feel like that? Your, your partner is maybe, you know, not in this can't, can't meet you in this, in this exalted state. And he said, well, I feel sad. I feel sadness about it. And he was like, okay, that's yours. We can work with that because that's your sadness. He's like, let's, let's feel into that sadness. Let's have compassion for that sadness. Let's let that, let's not try and suppress that sadness. Literally, what is depression? Depression is pressing down and not letting that sadness come through. Like, let's, let's feel that and, and let it out and let us move through it. Because the more that we can have compassion for our own sadness in these situations, that's where we can also have compassion for others and meet people there. 
and understand that it's not something to be afraid of these these negative emotions all emotions are are energy in motion they're 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 valid they need to be there and when they move through and when you can really meet them where they are and have compassion for yourself in the process that's the alchemy that's the power because then you can do the same for others and it doesn't have to be this fear that someone else is going to bring you down but rather you've touched the depth of your own sadness and therefore you can hold that space for someone else and to me that's integration i love that the the image that comes to mind um so carl Jung has a quote and it's a uh, the branches of the tree cannot reach to heaven without the roots reaching down into hell. And oh, I love that. It's so good. And mm -hmm. I think our nervous systems are based off of the pattern of trees. And if you actually look at the way our nervous oh, system yeah. spirals through our body, like it's it's the same <laughs> mathematical like geometry so there's some type of resonance between what our nervous system is and what a tree is and the way that i think about it is when you have a new peak experience and a peak like it is our uh human centric delusion that we think a peak is only up mm. <laughs> i, I think yeah. a way to feel into it is you have a core and that's where the seed was planted. And a peak is any new extension away from the core. So a branch can be a peak and a root can be a peak. Mm -hmm. And the way that I think about it is peak experiences are the bleeding edge of one of your tendrils, either branch or root, has just grown. And maybe it grew half an inch. In that new growth, is the opportunity for new stories and new behaviors that represent that new part of your growth. And that integration is trying to layer on the behaviors that are more in alignment with the ultimate inner image that's inside of you. Mm. And so that's an example of your root system has gotten deep enough where you can now begin to hone the behaviors of having compassion for someone else's root experience. Mm -hmm. A story that comes to mind for me that was like a game changer that I think encapsulates at least um, symbolically what we're trying to do with integration is for most of my life, I had a story that I was a coward you know, that like deep down, um, I just had this story that I was a coward. And I had an experience where uh, I think I was like 23 and I was camping with probably about nine or 10 of my friends and we all did MDA together. And one of my friends the next morning uh, when we were doing MDA, it was like wet. He slipped and he fell. We were at like a camping ground. And he fell 15 feet. And um, I still remember the moment where he was kind of around a cliff bend in front of me and I couldn't see him. And I heard the like movement of gravel and then the gasping of a couple of people and then a thud. 
And uh, long story short, a thing was sparked inside of me that I didn't know was there that uh, could feel that no one else was taking leadership of the chaos and everyone was kind of frozen. And I started to lead. I was able to be aggressive in service to my friends for the first time. You know, it's a whole other story, but I had a lot of resistance around being aggressive uh, because of the way that I was raised. And by the end of that experience, my self-identity could no longer hold the story that I was a coward. Mm -hmm. And it forced me to have to change the way that I treated myself, the way that I treated other people. It forced me to change my stories. And it was actually interestingly disruptive because I couldn't, I no longer could like hold back in a mm -hmm. situation where I now knew that I had the inner resources to show up to in a different way. And that when you do something like ayahuasca, or when you go have a peak experience where it reveals a part of you that you didn't know you had that in the revealing of that part, some story that you used to tell about yourself can no longer be true. There's this like dissonance between the song that's happening inside of you and the outside song of some environmental or relationship that's a part of your quote unquote ordinary world where it could have been ignored that it wasn't in harmony with you before but because of the peak experiences that you've gone through it's like there's this force demanding inside of you mm -hmm. change this thing to become in resonance with it or be haunted by me there's no third option yes and it it kind of spins into this the unsung hero of integration work is that you've I can read something all day, but when I experience it, when I feel it, there's no going back. Right. Right. And within that becomes a really beautiful thing in the collective healing is because you stop power grabbing, right? You stop manipulating others to see you a certain way. You just are that. Mm -hmm. And you sort of plant your flag and you say, here I am. I don't need your power. I've got my own. Interesting. I like that. And in like a collective way, we stop, we stop looking externally to have someone validate our experiences. And we say, when we can feel them again, through that somatic kind of very visceral experience, it's, we, it's kind of like pulled the shades over our eyes. We can't go back. We're almost compelled to be, like you said, it, ourselves. It's like, you can't, it's like, you just can't go back there. And so when you can't go back there, you sort of start to disseminate um, this perspective that you need to take from others, whether that's conscious or not. A lot of us are very unconscious in the fact that like, for an example, if you, when you're a facilitator in, in ceremony, people will sort to idealize you. They'll sort to like um, make you their, oh, it was because of you. And, you know, it's like, no, you did that work. I just helped you to the bathroom, right? But once you start to realize that, you know, you can feel these, this, this integration process, you can start to feel that in your, in your being, in your wholeness, you don't need to grasp that, grasp that, grasp that, or have anyone validate that within you. And you can say, again, you can say, here I am. I can only show up as my authentic self. I, I 
it's all I know to be mm. true for me. I love that. I, I have a question, um, Eric, if you don't mind. How did that feel for you? Like when you realized, oh shit, I can't call myself a coward anymore. Like this is, this doesn't even match with the actions that happened. Like what, what was that experience like, like changing that identity? Was it uncomfortable? Was it scary? Was it like empowering? I'm just curious what that was like for you. Yeah, it kind of felt like, um, I never thought that I could carry a sword and now I have a sword and it won't go away. And uh, <laughs> wow, it's it's really sharp. I don't know if I know how to use it well, but I know that I can't throw it away. Like there's a story from the Arthur myths where King Arthur at some point tries to throw Excalibur into a lake and the lady of the lake appears and she's like a ghost spirit type thing and she puts the sword back in his hand and he he tries to throw it again and she puts it back in his hand <laughs> and it's like um her quote is uh, the difference between a man and a king is that a king will not look away and um mm. but i just think mm. of that in the sense of like the thing wasn't going away anymore like it's coming back to my hand and so it was a awkward but uh undeniable like adventure of trying to learn how to use that sword well mm -hmm. you know and the sword is basically like when i don't agree with someone instead of people either being passive aggressive or just being quiet or lying or swallowing that they don't mm -hmm. agree it's like mm -hmm. i don't agree and like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like that on a psychological mythopoetic level is a life-changing moment for a lot of people um, where they finally get to the place where it's like, it's safe for me to voice when I am not in agreement. Mm -hmm. And that that's aggressive on some level. And, you know, it took my friend almost dying to open me up to the fact that I can tell people I don't agree. Well, it is a huge paradigm shift, right? I mean, to to a society and depending on, you know, so many of us were raised to act a certain way, which often led to repressing our voice and our emotions. And, you know, you wonder why there's there's so much, so many mental health issues in the world right now. And yeah, really being able to give voice to you know, what is in alignment for you? What is an integrity? What are your boundaries? What, you know, are you in service to, uh, you know, something that needs to happen? And, you know, that's, that's actually a huge paradigm shift. And I honestly feel like right now in the world, we are, so many of us are stuck in a frozen state and paralyzed by fear. And there is a lot of fear to be had. I mean, if you look around, it's very easy to succumb to that right and so the the paradigm should that i feel like that is the seed of the paradigm shift that needs to happen of more people speaking up for what they feel is is right and true yeah and i feel like it's go ahead no go on yeah and i feel like i my perspective is very different i see people speaking up very loudly i 
I see people sort of um, coming to their own realization of things. And this kind of reminds me of something I think about a lot and how back when people would have conversations with one another, we've sort of lost the, uh, it's a kind of a gift to say, I don't agree. Because what does that kind of produce that produces more conversations? It, it's saying like, hey, I might not agree with you, but let me hear what you have to say. And it feels like a lot of, a lot of you know, philosophy is kind of built in this way where people wouldn't agree and they would kind of sort of have to like, that's another thing. But um, what, I'm, what I'm really interested in is this, you know, for me as a woman, like to say, I remember when I started saying, I don't, hey, I don't agree with that. That would really make people really uncomfortable around me. And it made people really, especially um, cisgender men, it made them very, um, they did not like me. They thought that that was being, can't agree. This is what I believe. And and it it sort of like fosters more communication and more conversation. And I really admire that. I admire someone who's saying like, hey, I have a different perspective. I think that that's incredibly stunning. I think that that's what makes us human. And if we all thought the same, and just to kind of circle that all back to kind of social media and the world and using that as a tool, it's like, you know, of course, we don't want to be harmful and hurt people with our words and et cetera, but sharing more about your perspective, sharing more about whether you agree or don't agree is, is to me is like the spice of life. It makes things tasty and juicy and flavorful. Mm, opportunity to learn too right yeah yeah the thing that comes to mind is um integration is on one level uh becoming more of an evolutionary process instead of a static process and that Mm. most of the time what brings people to peak experiences because parts of them are frozen parts of them are static and fundamentally the wave that we're all on, the closest word we have to describe its physics is evolution. We're on an evolutionary wave. That's what all life and energy and everything here seems to be operating under the laws of some patterns that we can best describe as as evolutionary. A part of the evolutionary process is contending like life contending with life at the most extreme examples, you know, like most living sentient organisms on this planet die by being eaten by something else while it's still alive. And that's to serve a, that's an extreme to serve a less extreme, but I think equally poignant and required point is that our one of the reasons why we developed language was so our ideas could die instead of us is a famous mm. quote by a philosopher mm. and that. that wow i love that thinking and planning and working out a plan and seeing how it's wrong is akin to you are creating a mental avatar that you're going to send on a quest into the future 
and you're using <laughs> the information that you have about how the world works to test whether or not that avatar lives and mm -hmm. those ideas get to die so that you can create smarter and smarter avatars so you don't have to die and so when it comes to conversations it's like what our culture has lost the art of is I'm going to send out my avatar, you send out your avatar, and let's let them make each other stronger. Mm. What seems to be <laughs> the style now is if I sense that your avatar is not on the same team as me, mm. I'm sending you DMs calling you a piece of shit. Right. Like, yep. you know, like when the classic example is if you're playing Call of Duty online and you beat someone and you get the most nasty messages in your DMs from the player. And it's like, we have become so afraid and so defensive and so angry that the moment we can feel, oh, are you not on my team? Fuck you, you're evil, you're crazy, you're terrible, you're sheeple, you're anti-vax, pro-vax, your left, your right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we are fundamentally, if we can remember that we're all team humanity and that one of the best things that you could possibly do is find people who are sending out their word avatars towards your word avatar so that you too can learn a little bit more about how fucking stupid you are you can be a little bit more <laughs> mapped on to reality and you can see conversations, especially conversations with people who don't agree, but are in good faith with their disagreeing, how they're actually making you more whole and more competent. And then you start to be a part of the evolutionary process instead of trying to stay this static thing. Because fundamentally, when it's my team versus your team, and if you're on my team, I try to kill you. That's because you're resisting the evolutionary process. Yes, I'm always I'm, I'm I love this conversation around how there's with a hero, there's always a villain. And we villainize way that we whatever's opposite of us in this um, story of the Ramayana, Rama is like exiled out of his home and he's he's exiled by someone really incredibly close to him. And what's the story has stayed with me for so long, especially like the scene of the story, because without that happening, he would have not gone on to do incredible things. Right. And so if we kind of like, I, I like to attribute this to your story. If we have these two avatars, just kind of go out and like our little thought avatars, we can sort of realize that they can make us stronger versus, and it can kind of propel us forward rather than us being like, oh no, I have to stay safe. Like, let me guard myself. You're an asshole. <laughs> like, you know, and so it's like kind of this understanding of that sending these thoughts out there, being who we are meant to be saying and sharing what our feelings and experiences are sort of actually um, make us stronger, more resilient, more, um, we get more close to who we want to be. We learn more about ourselves. We learn about others. And it just, I really loved that, how you articulated that. I wonder like, what is this interesting fixation too on like, like we are not ideas, you know, like something that came up for me while you were describing this avatar thought is like, you know, 
people then get personal and attack the you know the person itself behind the avatar and so there's this over fixation on identification with ideas and when that happens it makes it harder for them to change because if you are steeped in the identity of this particular idea even when you receive new information then that idea like the death of that idea then means the death of you and so then it's inherently threatening for that idea to change. And I wonder why that is, like why that seems to be happening, because I do yeah. see that happening a lot, you know? Yeah, so what's what's really interesting is, so if we play with this idea of your words create these avatars that get to interact with other people's avatars, um, if you're in a conversation with someone else's avatar, their avatar has the potential capability of saying something that not only disrupts the avatar, but it starts to disrupt the operating system that generates the avatar and the operating system. So like, imagine you're on the Xbox and you have a character, you can interact with someone else's character in a way where they can actually start to malfunction your xbox and that's where it starts to feel scary and so to bring this to the human level the existential screaming reality of our situation of just being a of just being is so overwhelming and infinite and incomprehensible that humans from the earliest moments that we start to get enough cognitive architecture to even do this process, we start to put filters on reality. And the filters are our stories. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole like there's a technical aspect to like how we start to nest our identity inside of uh, deeper and deeper layers of stories. Imagine like a Russian nesting doll. And these nested stories literally regulate our nervous system. Like my fundamental beliefs about like time and space and how light works, like because it's consistent every day, it's, it's a thing that can help regulate me. If the sun was purple tomorrow, a lot of us would be fucked up for a long time because it, 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 would, it would fuck with one of our core stories. We have thousands. And um, a couple of layers out from our like base stories is our ideology. All of us. No one is free of having an ideology. Everyone has some version of an ideology. And it's a belief about how people ought to be or about how culture ought to be. And that's one of our stabilizing forces, especially if we have other people in community who agree to the same ideology. And when someone's really persuasive or our ideology is actually weak, but we hold on to it because of the group that we're a part of, but there's this voice inside of us that's like, motherfucker, this is not true. This is not true. Whatever it is, um, some people it's almost like one of the layers of their home is starting to be mm -hmm. destroyed by having a conversation with someone 
who, you know, like for most people who grew up with a Christian or a Baptist or a Catholic upbringing in the last 20 years, you probably weren't getting direct transmissions of the lineage of that wisdom tradition. You were being given empty carcasses of rituals to do that no one around you was actually connected to and there was this voice inside of you your whole life basically being like this is bullshit this <laughs> this, this doesn't make sense this doesn't make sense yeah. and yeah. if you if you were in a family where in order to be accepted into the family you had to believe the story you likely had fear or resistance to, you know, that kid in school that was like, God's not real. But if you felt safe on some level to leave that group, you would actually be excited to go talk to that person. But talking to them, especially if you weren't ready, could flip the script on your operating system you know like one of the things that's really hard to connect to is it's like a lot of people truly believe that any conscious enjoyable connection to their genitals is in contradiction to the most high being that's watching them all the time mm -hmm. and it's like to have if you have a moment where that flip or, or where that script flips and you're like oh, the being that is permeating everything is fundamentally a part of my genitals having blood go to them. It's not a judgment. It's not something that's going to make me go to hell forever. Your operating system of what the world means is transformed. Another one is if you truly believe in hell, like if you truly run the operating program of I am being judged. And if I fuck up, I could be tortured forever. If you have like a moment with mushrooms or a breath work or a dream even or something where you let that go forever, your operating system, like the thing that can even generate avatars has fundamentally changed. And so that's a long-winded way of me saying it's actually supported by scientific evidence that our stories, especially our fundamental stories about life, regulate our nervous system. And when we feel one of those core stories starting to crumble in the face of an argument, it feels like we're that we're physically protecting our actual bodies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's really, it's really interesting. Um, you touched on a lot of things that I, I personally resonate with. And I also know that I'm not alone in this by far. Um, having been raised Roman Catholic and basically fitting that description that you exactly described, you know, feeling as if there was, I was being handed rituals that no one really was connecting to, that it was this very sort of puppeteer thing. And then I was, I remember very clearly um, having a lot of shame about um, thinking that masturbation was a sin. And, you know, that, that cuts pretty deep when you're in your formative years. Right. And um, 
it really, really shot me to the other side. I became an atheist after. Um, and it's been, it's been a really like long, but also beautiful. And in some ways, relatively quick, um, process of reconnecting to my own spirituality. And I think that, you know, this, uh, understanding the opportunity that's here to to not necessarily like throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to this idea of something greater than ourselves um you know for me at least this was something that without that idea i felt very empty i felt very nihilistic and depressed honestly personally um but I was so disgusted by the, the dogma and the things that were happening in the Catholic community at the time when I was really like just removing myself from it. Um, and, and this is not to say, I mean, you know, I know many people who do find my mom personally, like it really saved her, right? So this isn't like a judgment of people that really do connect to that. But for me, um, I felt like it actually created trauma um, in my system. And and there was a lot of resistance coming back to that, like even using the word God, like there's still for me this negative connotation with that uh, because I've, I've, that core story for me has been like God stands for everything that, you know, is this institution of religion that for me was tainted. Um, but what I'm, what I'm really finding is a lot of meaning um, and connection. And like, I didn't believe in spirits and then I, <laughs> I met a spirit and now I believe in spirits, right? Like it's, I, I feel like there is this, um, this coming back home to myself with plant medicine and community. But like Sylvia was saying earlier, this is, um, this is still stigmatized and, you know, it's becoming less stigmatized, which is wonderful. And it's honestly, I hope that we can be a part of that, right? Like that's part of why we created the Maloka community because we wanted people to be able to have a space where, where people welcome and receive that type of conversation and these questions and these curiosities and like, you know, the being, being somewhat of a bridge back to these wisdom traditions that for me have created so much more meaning and connection in my life. And, um, you know, all of the, the maestros that have shared their wisdom with us being a place to help integrate that wisdom into our lives. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's so, that's so important in these times. And I think it's only going to become more important um, as we, you know, proceed. Mm, well said, Mel. I love that. And I don't know why, but my intuition was not to say something and to give room to it. Um, but now that I've given room and there was no more talking, I'm going to go for it. Um, the thing that uh, arises in me when I listen to that is because um, I had the same, or I had a very similar experience where both my parents were raised Catholic. And um, when I was young, it was just like, I, I could feel in my body, mm. even though I didn't have the words for it, that I could feel in their bodies that they had no fucking idea why they were doing it. You know, that <laughs> mm, that, yes, that there was, yes. and 
our bodies are ancient and intelligent and we've evolved to be able to discern the smallest change in energy or in you could call it neurochemistry, whatever of our parents like that is a relationship that every human has had to be exceptional at figuring out to survive and i could just feel it in their body it's like y'all motherfuckers don't believe this <laughs> um, but i didn't have the words for it back then but so there was no strong you know like pull to it it just it felt like nonsense but it's because what i was experiencing was not the living word of the logos being made manifest through people that are in attuned with the archetype of jesus that's not what i was experiencing and that, um, so I got this really watered down, like ossified edifice of a thing. And as soon as I started to be old enough to be able to ask critical questions, I thought that I was smarter than this thing. And then I was, you know, a passionate atheist for a while. <laughs> and then I slowly over the last 10 years have started to through my own personal adventuring into peak experiences so i'm starting to bring back like threads of like what is at the core of all these religious systems and it's that i almost have to roll i have to suppress the urge to roll my eyes so far into the back of my head that it, that they rip away from my optic nerve when i see people in the stage of life that i was in when i was like 20 to 24 where they think that their atheism which is different from agnosticism yeah where they're known <laughs> i know that there is no <laughs> is presented in a way where I can feel that implicitly behind their assertion of their atheism is a, like, I am, I have reviewed the depths of what these religions are trying to say. And it's so clear that they are fairy tales and that they're just wrong. And that, um, it feels like they feel that they understand what they are saying no to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a whole host of reasons, but one of my hypotheses is that a fundamental nutrient to the plant that is a human nervous system is the spiritual. Some connection to this thing that is almost like a fundamental nutrient to us. And it's, spirituality for lack of a better word and that uh most people who advocate that they know that there's no such part like that in their life look at how they treat politics or look at how they treat their relationship <laughs> or look at how they treat art or look at how they treat you know meditation you will be able to find somewhere in their life where God is hiding or yeah. that 
their specific connection to the transcendent that would actually fly in the face on some level of their atheism. And it's most often in their politics. Their politics become, Carl Jung has a great quote, and it's, it's something along the lines of, um, when we kill the icon that holds the projection of the religious, it doesn't go away. It's going to come back in our isms and, you know, like <laughs> ISM. <laughs> and that uh, there's a lot of people who their modern day religion is either, you know, some far right narrative or some far left, you know, story. And that's their God. Well, it's a trauma response, right? Like for me, what I see what I see in others and what I saw in myself was that that my only connection to spirituality growing up was this 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 dogma of of Catholicism that wasn't well understood and wasn't actually connected to. And like you said, this ossified edifice that I was handed um, and that traumatized me. And so what did I do? I dissociated from it. I was like, no, I'm going, no, this is not working for me. And it it felt so like a core trauma um, because it was connected to all these other areas of my life that I did go in the opposite direction. And what did I feel like a lot of depression for many years masked also in self-righteousness. And, you know, I started to realize it was like, it was like me saying, <laughs> this is actually how I started the opening of like coming coming back to spirituality was like me saying that I knew that there was nothing is just as extreme and like incorrect as any like fundamental Christian you know or any like very extreme religion saying they know exactly what's going on it was the same thing and that (laughs) extreme I know what's going on and this is the way the world is even though I can't prove it like was was actually what traumatized me in the first place and I was doing that with atheism. I love that so much. There's actually a quote I saw just yesterday from Bertrand Russell, and it's something along the lines of, um, you know what, I'm not even going to, I'm going to let your point sit and spread its fragrance into the room instead of me trying to butcher a quote that I know I won't remember properly. (laughs) But I think that the essence of what you're sharing, which is, one of our evolutionarily designed programs is to conserve energy. Like that, that's one of our core programs that this meat suit is running. And one of the ways that we can conserve our energy is to make a sweeping story that allows us to ignore a huge <laughs> amount of reality. There's also a word. Um, for trying for people who boil everything down to one thing and uh it's actually an ism Hmm. i don't know what it is off the top of my head but like to believe that you know there is not or to believe that you know that there is if the thing coming after the word not or is is anything metaphysical you're tricking yourself full stop like you don't even really know what energy is i mean right 
<laughs> like, and it's like it reminds me of like two sides of the same coin it's like okay so atheism is on one side and and like puritanical beliefs are on one and it's like you were saying that mel it's like this pendulum swing you're like i'll go from this and then i'm swinging to the other side but yep. it's like the same it's the same yep. vibe yeah <laughs> it's yep. just like I, it's nothing is real and, and i think for me it was in, it's kind of like somewhere in the middle, like my grandmother's a nun. Um, and so I think I feel like I grew up with this, um, interest in it. It was, it was very interesting to me. Um, but my mother is also from Italy. My parent, my, my father's Hispanic. So I come from like an immigrant home. And so it's like, don't sweep your feet though. And, and okay, make sure you do this and make sure you do that. And it's like directly in opposition of what religion is. When we were younger, we would see like ghosts all over the place. And we'd be like, oh my gosh, <laughs> when we were kids and my mom's like, oh yeah. And she's talking to us about this. And then you go to church on Sunday and it's like, repent, <laughs> say these things. And so it was like this constant, like, okay, what? <laughs> So it was very normal. It was very common to talk about uh, different different natures of a different spirituality and different realms. And I remember as a kid, I was really little. I want to say I was like nine and I'm like reading this Bible because I'm trying, even then I'm like trying to extract the truth. I remember as a kid, like, okay, it's like I was like trying to decipher some like secret math code. <laughs> Really and then I, re I remember viscerally at one point and being like, okay, like literally like you guys got to give me something like this can't all like, this isn't, <laughs> this isn't true. This can't be all fake either. And so it was kind of living this life where it was like teeter tottering between this like puritanical kind of like Catholicism. Like if you don't go, if you don't tell, confess your sins, like that's terrible to this other thing where my mom's like, oh yeah, you know, like, uh, you know, just little things here, put this here, wear this. Um, and so it was just very conflicting. And I remember, um, and that's why I've kind of talked about in the beginning of around this shame of like starting to kind of come into this, Hey, there's something outside of myself. There's something more than, than what meets the eye. And I think psychedelics were the doorway into that. And, um, I eventually ended up finding my spiritual teacher and gosh, the things I could say now, right. It's like, once you know, you know, kind of thing. But there's this <laughs> constant, like, like, just like, I mean, when you're looking through the lens of uh, puritanical beliefs, I feel like anything, like Eric was saying, it's like it, it sort of feels threatening in a primal way. And if we take that even a step deeper, the primal fear, that primal DNA fear is being rejected being cast out of the tribe. Hey, I actually don't believe in this Catholicism, Christianity, and, and this way you're teaching me. I actually believe that I can go into trance states and kind of journey around and people will look at you like you've signed, you know, a contract with the devil. And that's really fucking scary to say, Hey, I don't believe the way that you believe. I and I'm going to go ahead and cast myself out of this tribe <laughs> and it will ultimately lead to my death. And, and I, this... and I, yeah, go on. And it sounds it sounds really when I say that, of course, it sounds like whoa, but it feel you feel that. And as I'm telling you that, I can feel my body respond. My nervous system is having a response to that. I can feel my primal DNA that we all have respond to this feeling of 
hey, I'm going to go on this podcast and tell Eric, like, you know, I'm a medical medium and I can see into people's bodies. And, and my body is like, ah, don't do that. Fight, run away. Well, you just did it. Congratulations. Like, that was very terrifying. <laughs> terrifying. The, <laughs> the, um, <clears throat> the core, and I think one of the most uh, pertinent threads for anyone listening to like feel into and carry with them in the times that we're in right now is to become conscious and to reprogram this instinct <clears throat> to exile other mm -hmm. people that we want to punish. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the core tribal dynamics that I think is uh, most responsible for the pain and dissonance and dysregulation that we see happening in our culture right now. And it's that when someone does not act in accordance with how we think they ought to act, um, we have the ancient nervous system knowledge of this thing that you could call exiling language. And exiling language is you start to find what are the words, which are spells, that if I start to tell other people that this person is, I might be able to get them removed from my life. And that a hundred thousand years ago, if you said a word that would help other people justify exiling someone from your tribe, they would die. Like if they were excommunicated from the tribe and left to their own accord back, you know, a hundred thousand years ago, it was a death sentence. And my brain likes to play with words. And so like the thing that came from me is that Exiling language is literally the grammar of death sentences. And exiling language would look like calling someone crazy, calling someone a narcissist, calling someone a psychopath, calling someone a sociopath, calling someone you know, a rapist, calling someone, um, you know, like a libtard or a anti-vaxxer or like we have all these words karen. that karen yes mm, yeah. that um not all of the time but most of the time you can feel that the energy underneath it is this person deserves to be outside of my sphere of compassion and they shouldn't be in your sphere of compassion and then once they're not in our sphere of compassion anymore, which is fundamentally like if we don't see them as a member of our tribe, we then get to project all of our unconscious rage and fear and judgment and persecution onto that other group. And when that dynamic, which all of us, have within us and play within on some level, if that dynamic is turned all the way up to a 10, that's when you get genocide. That's when you get holocausts. That's when you get wars is once you start to turn 
the volume of that process all the way up to 10, it justifies you doing the most terrible things to the other people. And that to bring this whole thing home, um, we felt resistance, uh, sharing that we didn't agree to a set of stories because we feared an exile that would come mm -hmm. from that. We can start to heal the things in the collective that we want to see healed by finding where is the shard or fragment of that thing in my life, because yeah. that's where I have the realm of competence to actually change something. And so the invitation that I would give to people as a part of an integration practice is find where in your life you use this exiling process. Yes, and I love that. I invite you to sit with the part that wants to exile someone else and have a conversation with it in the way that Sylvia has laid out where just hear it and feel it. And then see what arises from that. Because I can guarantee you, if you repost any story on your Instagram that is a political tweet, you almost, almost <laughs> certainly you are participating in this exiling language dynamic. And it matters. And even if you're only playing with it to the degree that maybe you call someone crazy, like, I, I really have resistance towards people calling other people crazy, but that's a whole story on its own. The invitation is to become aware of where you use that exiling dynamic and um, play with the what if of inviting the part that wants to exile to the fire and have a conversation with it. I love that. I love that. We need to break the cycle, right? Like I actually, I had this written down as you were speaking and you, you touched on it. Um, beautifully and you know we need to welcome in the I don't agree because think of how powerful it felt for you to find your voice and be able to say that let's allow others to do that too right like we we want to maybe punish others for not agreeing because we were punished for not agreeing so if we can find our own voice and also not overly identify with the ideas that we're presenting, then we can break that cycle of punishing people. Because if we don't punish others and we realize the ways that we were punished and how healing it is for us to be able to say, hey, this is my opinion. I'm also open to changing my opinion. I'm opening to sending out my avatar and letting another's avatar make me stronger. Like, I welcome your I don't agree. Let's make each other stronger. I love that. And like I welcome that your I don't agree. I love it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Break the cycle. And, and then that translates to how you, of course, speak to yourself. Exactly. Not as many people are self-aware. They're more, they project a lot of the things onto others and, yep. and they don't even know. And sometimes it's like, well, how do you talk to yourself? It's like, I don't know. Journal, um, motherfucker. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, how are you exiling yourself with yes. yourself? Like, do you even feel safe with yourself? Like, what does that look like? What does that feel like? 
I mean, it's a big part of like what the Maloka holds. It carries this community aspect where you can be yourself, where you can sort of practice this I don't agree uh, in a safe way where people, you know, we're all adults here. A lot of us are still kind of stuck in age. Like I have a small child, he's five years old. And one of the things that I do is I encourage the I don't agree. I don't know. He doesn't, I'm not his boss. I let him explore, you know, if it's dangerous and obviously not going to let him run out into the road, but um, however, like, and I can see the change and just like a small child, when you give them back the autonomy yeah. to say, I don't agree. I'm telling you, you can notice it in his posture. I notice it in his system. If he doesn't agree, he starts to get kind of activated and I'm like, okay, well, what, what do you think instead? And immediately, like within, it's an instant, settles back, stands up straight, feels that autonomy. And if we kind of extend that out to each other as an adults, we're not only doing the work culturally in our communities, but we're doing it within ourselves in such a way that we can circle back to what Eric said earlier about kind of lifting, you can't go back from that. You know, you have your self-autonomy, you have that courage, so to speak. You were planting your flag, you know, like here I am. And that's so powerful. Like I can't stress enough the power it feels. And I'm not talking about like political power or all that. I know power has its own terminology and own beliefs these days, but I'm talking about personal power. I'm talking about when you can stand and say, this is my experience. And it doesn't take away from your experience, but this is who I am. That's stunning that is beautiful that is human earth we stop trying to take from one another we stop trying to power grab manipulate we kind of just can be okay with our own power in that way so ah yummy yummy stuff absolute resonation um to bring this home uh what would each of you like to share as a parting message to my listeners about whatever it is. It could be about Sultara, it could be about Maloka, it could be about, you know, uh, it's okay to masturbate, whatever it is. Uh, but I wanna give each of you the opportunity <laughs> to share whatever is on your heart that will help you feel complete uh, to close out this beautiful podcast. Mm, thank you. Um, I can go first. I think what's alive for me right now is this idea that we need more bridge builders in this world. And there's so many different potent, beautiful solutions to our traumas, to the fear, to what's going on in the world. There's so many different ways we can approach things. And what I feel is partly my purpose and what I see in the community happening is this sort of like mycelial network of people coming together and sharing their own medicines and sharing their own skills and sharing their stories and bringing back the old stories, bringing back the wisdom traditions and being a bridge between worlds, being a bridge between cultures, being a bridge between modalities and approaches to healing and solutions. And, you know, I think for, for what I, I want Soltara to be, what I want the Maloka to be, and just what I feel can be a really powerful catalyst for 
creating this critical minority of people who are connected to each other and to others and to the earth and in reciprocity and integrity is, is this idea of let's build bridges rather than burn them um, and see where that can get us. You know, what maybe, maybe we can't get to point, like we can't get to point F without a bridge between each, each point in between, you know, like this is like, we need, we need everyone to, to be open to seeing the other side, to having firm footings in both worlds in different viewpoints and perspectives. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's kind of what I'm feeling is like, let's, let's try and build some bridges um, across these different perspectives and see where we can go with that. A woman. <laughs> yes. Beautiful, Mel. Um, I'd like to read a poem, if that's okay. It's, it's short. It's absolutely not okay. Of... <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, well, first thing I want, I would want to say is, um, remystify your life. Ooh. Remystify your life. Yes. All right. Yes. yes. That, that would be what I would say. Wow. Everything, everything is waiting for you, by David White. Your great mistake is to act the drama as if you were alone, as if life were a progressive and cunning crime with no witness to the tiny hidden transgressions. To feel abandoned is to deny the intimacy of your surroundings. Surely, even you at times have felt the grand array, the swelling presence and the chorus crowding out your solo voice. You must note the way the soap dish enables you or the window latch grants you freedom. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. The wow. stairs are your mentor of things to come. The doors have always been there to frighten you and invite you. The tiny speaker in the phone is your dream ladder to divinity. <sighs> Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing, even as it pours you a drink. Wow. The cooking, pots, <laughs> the cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seen the good in you at last. All the birds and the creatures of the world are unutterably themselves. Everything is waiting for you. Wow. <laughs> Chills. Remystify your life, please. Wow. Get back. Let's what was the back. name of that poem again? One more time. Yeah, everything is waiting for you. David White. Ooh. Thank you, so that was thank beautiful. you for listening. Thank you for holding that. It touched me. Good right? lord. Oh, I love it. <laughs> wow. Um oh. I'm going to let that be the period on this beautiful conversation. I know that we're going to have more. And uh, thank you so much, both of you, for coming on. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you.